All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. It's, uh, it's really great to have you on with me this morning. Very special Kabbalah and Coffee, as you know, as I think all of you know, if not, if not most of you know. Um, uh, this is the, we didn't have Kabbalah and Coffee last Sunday as my, uh, my really dear and beloved grandfather passed away son- last Sunday morning. Um, some of you had the opportunity to meet my grandfather, um, whether it was through Zoom, at some of the classes that we've been doing over the last little while, or whether it was in person on his visit to Atlanta. But one thing is for sure, if you met him, you remember him. He was a memorable individual. He was an incredible grandfather and person and rabbi and shliach, emissary of the previous Rebbe. He was sent to Pittsburgh in the 1940s. Somebody asked me yesterday in Shul if he was the last, you know, the last living um, emissary from the previous Rebbe. And I don't know the answer to that question, but I don't know if I don't know that there's anyone else still out in the field from the 1940s. He was he was a legend and an icon, and um, everything that you get here is is due to his merit. So let's let's jump in to today's topic. All right. So today we're going to talk about investing and spiritual spiritual investing specifically. So the nature of investing is, this is what they tell me, is that if you want a return, you need to invest. And if you don't invest, you're not going to get a return. You'll have what you have, but you're not going to have anything more unless you invest. In other words, what I'm really trying to say is that the nature of investing, the nature is risk. If there's no risk, there's very little return. If somebody tells you, there's no risk, Here, here's, you take money and you don't risk it at all and magically it grows you know, to five times the size, right? Magically it's gonna, you know, five times the, the original amount, you probably know there's some sort of scam behind it because you know, no risk, no reward. Or as I wrote in the email, I guess at this point the last two weeks, um, no deposit, no return. If we don't have skin in the game, then there is uh, very little expectation of getting something, getting something back in return bigger than what we put in. So I want to speak about this in the context, again, spiritual investing and spiritual return, spiritual reward. And we're, what we're going to do is we're going to go through the, a journey of conversation, really exploring the nature of life on earth and the soul's journey into this world, and the soul's journey out of this world. So I want to begin with a Mishnah. Mishnah is the first time, the first um, occurrence in which the oral law of Judaism is written down, just to give a very quick explanation of what I just said. So we know that the Torah, literally the Torah refers to the five books of Moses, what some people call the Old Testament. But you have to learn it in a timely fashion. It's not so old at all. It's very, uh, it's very timely and relevant if you know how to read it. Anyway, the Old Testament. So the Torah is comprised of five books of Moses, plus there are other books of Jewish scripture, including the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, the book of Samuel 1, Samuel 2, Kings, etc. All of that is, is what we call the, the written Torah scripture that's written down. In addition to the laws that were written down in the Torah, 
so that Moses wrote down and what we know as the five books of Moses, let's say. In addition to that, there are explanations. Many, many, many explanations and details that were taught to Moses at Mount Sinai by God that were not written down. It's as if, not as if, it's, it's that God basically told Moses, all right, here are the laws, and this is what you should write down as a reminder. You're going to write down the core details or a, a, a few notes about the laws, but the full details of the laws, I'm going to teach to you, and then you'll teach it to the people. And Maimonides details this based on sources about how exactly the transmission of this oral tradition would, would happen, that God would tell Moses, Moses, Moses would tell um, a select group of individuals and then a, a, another group of individuals and then, you know, kind of like broadening the circle until ev everyone was taught and then everyone reviewed it a bunch of times. And that's how, that's how Judaism was preserved for many, many hundreds of years until the second temple was destroyed. And at that point, the Jewish nation was being dispersed throughout the world, essentially. Until then, Jew Jewish people had been concentrated in, essentially, Israel. There was, between the first and second temples, a 70-year period of exile where Jews, many Jews went to Babylonia, but nonetheless, they stayed in the same area. But after the second temple's destruction, Jews really were being dispersed and, and, and being exiled into, into the, what we call the diaspora. And so there was a real threat and danger to the narrative of Judaism being preserved. In other words, if Judaism relies on an unbroken tradition of explanation of what these laws mean, well, how do you ensure their authentic transmission when you don't have a singular, cohesive community within which to share that tradition? Does that make sense what I'm saying? In other words, if you want to play the game of telephone, right, in one room, it's one thing to get the message from one person to the other. You know what the game of telephone is? You start off with a message, and then one person whispers it into the next person's ear, and they whisper into the next person's ear. So you can hope to get an, un uh, uh, a, an authentic and faithful transmission of that message in the same room. But imagine you start off with, with one message, one whispered message into a room of, uh, of 10 people. And then you take those 10 people and you send them across the world. And then they have to share the message, right? And then those people continue to travel and share the message. So as it, as it fans out, the question really, or not the question, but the risk becomes, at what point is it going to be a guarantee that the message is going to be lost or you'll end up with different messages and no, sing no single um, authentic understanding of what Judaism is. So in order to curtail that, forestall that, in order to prevent that from happening, the great Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the great Rabbi Judah the Prince, took the bold action to write down the, what we call the oral tradition, in other words, the details of the laws that are originally stated in Torah. So there's biblical law that has all these explanations that were passed down through the generations that were never written down until around the second or third century of the Common Era when they were written down out of necessity. So it was meant to be preserved through oral tradition, but you know, you, you got to do what you got to do. And at a certain point in time, it became necessary to write it down. So the Mishnah is the first emergence of the oral tradition in written form. Let me check in. Does that make sense what I just said? I gave you a very quick history of we, what we call Torah Shabbat Pad, the oral tradition. Okay. The Talmud, if you've heard of the Talmud and wonder what it was, the Talmud emerged. I have a question. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So 
is it the sapphire tablets, the Ten Commandments, that were the only physical thing then at the time? The tablets were the only thing that had God's writing on it, but they did have scrolls of Torah. What we know, what we have in synagogues today, the Torah scroll, the same scrolls have been present in Jewish in Jewish um, communities since the times of Moses. Moses wrote the first Torah. They wrote multiple Torahs in Moses' lifetime. Every single Torah since has been copied exactly letter by letter, word for word, from those original Torahs. No matter where you go around the world, you pull out a Torah, it's the same exact text, unbroken for 3,000 years. So there were, there, there were scroll, Torah scrolls written then, but it was Moses who wrote the scroll dictated by God. The Ten Commandments on the tablets, that was God's own engraving. So that's like next level with the Ten Commandments, the top ten. I don't know top ten, but, but those ten. Then you have the scroll that has what we know as the Torah, the five books of Moses. And that has all 613 mitzvot, but the details are not all there. Some mitzvot are explained more, some explained less, but even if it's explained more, there are many details that are not there. And this, the simple idea is that they were given to Moses and transmitted orally until they were written down. Now the Mishnah, even the Mishnah, which is the first emergence of the oral tradition, it's not like super elaborative either. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great start. I'm not knocking it, by the way. They wrote it down, but they didn't write down everything. They just wrote down what in that generation they felt was enough to preserve the tradition. Does that make sense? What I just said? In other words, it was the first time they felt like they needed to write it down, so they just wrote what they needed to write down, what they felt was necessary for... The, the continuity. Well, fast forward a few hundred years, it's a few, you know, several generations later, and now you need to write down more. Because as the generations continue, there's more risk of forgetting and more need for clarification of even what they wrote 200 years prior in the Mishnah. So standing a few hundred years later, now it's like, what did they mean in the Mishnah? We can't ask them it's 200 years later, 300 years later, so now we have to try to figure out what they mean. Um, I want to give you a, 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 an example of this, Lahavdil. I don't want to compare, you know, it's not a direct comparison between divine law, Torah, and uh, U.S. law. But even when it comes to the Constitution, which was written how many years ago? A few hundred years ago, right? Today, there are major debates that have gone to the Supreme Court about what the meaning of the Constitution is. For example... The, um, the, uh, the, 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 what is it, the Second Amendment about guns? Yeah, is that Second Amendment? I should, I should probably know this. Um, yeah, Second Amendment about gun rights. So the language of the Second Amendment is <coughs> something like the people and then a well-armed a, a militia. There's, there's different language, and the question is, is it granting the rights of guns to the individual or to militias or state um, you know, state uh, um, uh, forces. Not going to get into the debate, but you should know that this question went to the Supreme Court not that long ago, and they had a rule on it, and it was a very tight ruling. It wasn't a slam dunk. My point is not to get, not to get sucked into the, to, the, to, the, to the gun debate, 
My point is to say that a document that was written just a few hundred years ago, today, is controversial. The question is, what did they mean? So go ask them. There you go. You can ask them. So now it's up to the best of our ability to try to interpret what they mean. So again, lahavdil to create a massive separation between Torah law and a secular law, but in, 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 a, uh, in, in somewhat of a similar way, the Mishnah that was written in the 2nd and 3rd century of the Common Era, a few hundred years later, already required more explanation, more elaboration, and was filled with debate and, 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 and difference of opinion as, it, as to how to understand the Mishnah itself. What's it? One second, guys. Hold on. Let me uh, quickly navigate something. Um, do me a favor. You guys switch off turns. Because I have to teach, okay? So tell him you have first turn. Okay. All right. I am back. So, um, so a few hundred years later, the, the Talmud emerges. The Talmud is a collection of the dialogue and debate regarding essentially the Mishnah. The Talmud cites a piece of Mishnah. The Samad cites a piece of Mishnah and then elaborates on it, asks questions, um, broadens the discussion. There are debates in the Talmud as to what the Mishnah means or as to how to apply the Mishnah in other cases that the Mishnah doesn't directly speak about. Either way, the, the Talmud continues the conversation of the Mishnah and then subsequently other commentaries and, and other books continue that conversation of Jewish law. So the core, we know, but a lot of the um, other pieces of it are, uh, are parts that are, that are an ongoing conversation. Certainly the, the parts that we apply to modern, uh, to modern times, um, certainly that is something that's part of the ongoing conversation of the oral tradition. So getting back to our conversation, I want to begin learning inside with Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers. This is something, it's part of the Mishnah, one of the tractates of Mishnayot, of the Mishnah, that is studied traditionally in the summer months. It's the ethical part of of, uh, of the Mishnah. It's, it's one tractate that's not about the law, but really about behaving beyond the letter of the law. There's a lot of moral teaching, a lot of spiritual ideas, and it's, uh, it's really beautiful. There's a custom that every Saturday afternoon between Passover and Shavuot, and our custom is to actually to go the whole summer, that we learn one chapter, one chapter a week. So this, yesterday we studied chapter five, but I want to share with you the Mishnah at the end of chapter four. So I'm gonna share my screen with you and let's jump into this conversation. Um, this is going to, you know what, we'll do two Mishnahs, 21 and 22. Okay, 21 and 22. Rabbi Elazar, first of all, let, let me check in. Can you guys see my screen? Where it says Rabbi Elazar HaKapar, yeah? Okay. Rabbi Elazar HaKapar would say, envy, lust, and honor drive a man from the world. In other words, these are three things, human vices, that end up destroying the vice the one bearing these vices. Envy, somebody lives their life always looking at the other person, always wanting what someone else has, always feeling um, like why did they have it and I don't have it, and begrudging the fact that others have blessings, right? The, the, the jealousy and envy, it's destructive. It doesn't hurt the other person, it hurts ourselves. 
The next one is lust. Lust is the insatiable desire for more and more and more. And again, this self-disruptive honor, the pursuit of cover, the pursuit of honor, needing others to honor you, to like you, to love you. The idea of needing to put on some sort of persona to get honor. Again, it, it not, it's, it's not just destructive perhaps to others. It drives the person themselves from the world. It's self-destructive. These are three traits that are self-destructive. Make sense? Okay. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm just, and I'm, as I'm sure in the next few weeks and months, you'll, uh, I'll be doing this a lot, but sharing stories of my grandfather or just anecdotes about his life. He was somebody who never had a trace of these three traits. He never looked at anyone. He never, never lost. He truly happy and satisfied with what he had and with his, um, with his place. Never looked for honor or for fame, for covet. Wasn't, wasn't in his lexicon. Um, okay, verse 22. By the way, I, I believe that these are the keys to happiness and contentment and peace of, and, and tranquility, inner tranquility. And when you have inner tranquility, I believe you physically live longer as opposed to living with this anxiety and desire and you know, needing to be someone else, needing for others to look at you, needing to have more and more and more. It's, these are literally self-destructive, self-destructive traits. All traits, by the way, that in our modern society, these are the highest traits, right? These are the highest traits. Social media and, 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 and other platforms and everything else promote envy, lust, and honor, 100%. If you don't believe me, feel free to uh, log on to social media and then report your findings. Uh, 22, chat, Mishnah 22. Yeah, no one disagrees with me, right? Everyone's, you're, you're all with me on what I'm saying, right? I don't need to elaborate. Okay, Mishnah 22, this is the final Mishnah of chapter 4 of Pirkei Avot. He would also say, Rabbi Elazar HaKapar would also say, those who are born will die and the dead will live. Let me explain as we go along. Those who are born will die means that everyone, everyone has a time to live and a time to pass away. No one lives forever. And the dead will live. It's a fundamental Jewish belief in the resurrection of the dead. Those of you taking our current JLI course, this can happen. Right? This is a topic that's a part of the belief, the foundational Jewish belief of Mashiach, the idea of Tchiat HaMetim, the idea of the resurrection of the dead. We're going to be covering that in our sixth lesson of, of the course for those that are taking the Tuesday or Thursday course. Um, but that's what this means. Those who are born will die and, those, and, and, and the dead will live once again. The living will be judged to learn, to teach, and to comprehend that he is God. He is the former. Former mean, doesn't mean like the ex-God. No, former means the one who forms everything. The former, like the uh, create. Yotzer. Former is like when you form something, form a vase out of, out of clay. He is the creator. He is the comprehender. He is the judge. He is the witness. He is the plaintiff. And he will judge. Blessed is he 
God, for before him there is no wrong, no forgetting, no favoritism, and no taking of bribes. Know that everything is according to the reckoning. Let not your heart convince you that the grave is your escape. That's, uh, that's basically saying that there is an accounting after we pass away. There is an accounting. The grave is not the escape. It's not like, well, let me do whatever I, let me do whatever, uh, I want now because it doesn't matter once I'm gone. The Mishnah says that's not necessarily true. The grave is not the escape. For against, and this is what I want to focus on, against your will you are formed. Against your will you are born. Against your will you live. Against your will you will die. And against your will you are destined to give a judgment and accounting before the king, king of all kings, the Holy One, blessed be he. Very powerful Mishnah that talks about really mortality and about um, accountability. And human accountability, it's about recognizing that what we do has an effect, what we do matters, and we have to do what's right. Very, and, and there are, I should, I should mention, that there are dozens, if not hundreds, of commentaries on Pirkei Avot. And so this one Mishnah, Mishnah 22, we could, we could spend many sessions just going through this one Mishnah, this one little piece. 22 of the, the larger chapter, right? You see this? Scrolling through the chapter now. 22. But I want to focus on this one piece, something that we've talked about in other classes before, but it's really important to reset for this conversation today. It says, against your will you are formed, right? I don't believe any of us chose to be conceived. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Right? Against your will you are formed. Against your will you are born. Against your will you live. And against your will, you will die. So the commentators ask the question, if, if life is contrary to our will, then how is death contrary to our will? In other words, what are we saying? Against your will, you live. Which means that a person does not want to live. Or the soul doesn't want to live. And then it says, against your will, you die. How does that make sense? These, this is a contradiction. Which one is it? Do we not want to live? Or do we want to live? Do you understand my question? It says against, it says life is against your will and death is against your will. No, make up your mind. <laughs> Which one is it? Do you want to live or you don't want to live? So let me explain. We're talking about the soul. And when we talk about the soul, the soul is a very complicated being. Very complicating, a very complicated existence. Why? Here we go. Against your will you live means that the soul does not want to come down here. The soul does not want to come down into this world, into a body, fending for itself against and contending with an animal soul. It does not want to do that by its own nature. It would rather be connected on high, back in its source with God. So against your will, you're born. Against your will, you live. The soul does not want to be here. But then it says in the very same sentence, the very next breath, it says, against your will, you die. Which tells us that even though the soul does not want to be here, 
there is still a benefit for the soul in being here. And based on that benefit, the soul doesn't want to leave either. So it doesn't want to be here, but it doesn't want to leave either. I told you the soul is complicated. The soul's existence is a contradiction. On the one hand, it doesn't want to be here. It would rather be in the spiritual reality, spiritual plane. On the other hand, it does want to be here because it knows that what it can accomplish here, it can't accomplish anywhere else. To understand, to really understand, I'm giving you the kernel of the idea, but let's unpack it and let's really understand what this means. So to understand this, we need to look at the purpose of life itself. And that we can explore on two levels, the macrocosm or the microcosm, the universal or the personal, and they're both connected. In other words, we could ask the question, why does the world exist? Why does existence exist? That's one question. Then we can ask another question, which is, why do I exist? Why am I here? So those are two different questions, but they're really touching on the same, at the core, the same idea. The questions are coming and emanating from the same place. Why do things exist? Why do I exist? Right? Why are we here? Or why am I here? Essentially the same question. The ultimate question of existence, the ultimate existential question. To be or not to be? Maybe not exactly that question, but why are we here? So Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, provides multiple answers for this question that are all true on different levels of perception and perspective. So one answer, which is a favorite answer of Kabbalah, one of the primary answers, if not the primary answer, is that the soul, let's, speak of, let's focus on the microcosm, on the, on, on, on the individual. Why, why, do, why am I here? So one answer, which again is a big answer, is that the soul did not come... Let me explain the question. The soul was connected on high, was connected, was one with the source, with a capital S, one with God. And then the soul was chiseled off, so to speak, not exactly, but separated from its source and sent down into a cold, dark, and often cruel world to contend with all of the challenges of life. The question is why? Why would you take a beautiful soul, a beautiful piece of God, and send it into such a hostile, volatile, and dangerous, dark and ugly environment? Question makes sense? Okay. So one answer is that it's not for its own benefit. It's not for itself. Why does the soul come down here? The soul comes down here to benefit the world, to benefit the body and the animal soul that it is in proximity with. So think of it as a special agent on a mission where you send the special agent behind enemy lines in order to accomplish a mission that can only be done there. In a similar fashion, a similar way of understanding, we could say that the soul is sent to this world not for its own benefit, it would rather stay in, at headquarters. It would rather stay 
you know, with God in a comfortable spiritual space. But it has a mission. It has a task. Its task to bring light into a dark place. You, soul, carry your torch. Carry your unique and individual light. Bring it into the space, the space of the world, and light up the world in a way that only you can. That's its mission. So yes, so yes, the soul would rather not be here. But no one's asking the soul, right? Since when is the soul being consulted with this? The soul is not being asked. The soul is being sent. The soul is not, we're not saying, soul, where would you rather be? It's soul, we need you here, right? We need you, right? Neshamala, we need you down here. We need you to go and light up the world. We need you to make a mensch out of this body. We need you to transform the lives of those around you. We need you down here. That's one understanding. Another understanding in a, in, a, in a similar vein, but a little bit different, is that the soul comes down to this world in order to achieve something it could never achieve back home in heaven, back home in the spiritual realms. And what is that? It's a depth of connection that is only born through trial and tribulation. How do you know how strong a soul is and how strong the connection is? You only know that when the bond is tested. If the soul can remain connected at such a long distance from its source, then you know that the soul is truly special. Does that make sense? Yes, sort of. It's a test of faith for the soul. A soul in heaven, a soul in, uh, basking in spiritual divine light, we have no indication about how strong that soul is. But when the soul comes down in, <laughs> into this physical environment, comes down into this world, contending with all of the mishagas and all of the craziness of this world, with all of the distractions of this world, and the soul can still eke out a spiritual relationship with God, a, a real relationship with God, a spiritual connection, a spiritual life. The soul can still do that so far from home, then you know that indeed the soul is a strong and powerful soul. So that's another element of explanation, another layer of understanding of why the soul comes down below. What's common to both of these explanations you know, one being that it's not for itself, it's for the benefit of those that it is bringing light to, and the other one that it, it does become stronger in the process. The, the, the bottom line, the, the connection between the two, or the common denominator between these two explanations, and they are, they are different, but what's common to them is that they both share the same core idea. No pain, no gain. No deposit, no return. If you want something greater than what you have, then you have to do something radical in order to get it. If you want light in a dark world, you have to do something drastic. If you want to bring out the secret powers of a soul, you have to do something drastic. Let me give you a physical example. You take a seed, 
you take the seed, the little seed in your hand, you take a, then you dig a hole in the earth, and you drop the seed into the earth, and you cover it. Someone who doesn't know about, someone who's never seen farming or planting before, gardening before, would say, what are you doing? You took a nice looking seed and you're burying it under the earth? What a waste of a seed, right? It's a nice little seed. You can put it on, um, you know, you can put it in a little box. You can put it, um, I don't know, you can put it on display somewhere and you took it and you buried it under the ground, what are you doing? What a waste of a seed. Of course, of course, the, uh, the gardener or farmer or you know, whatever it is would, would tell this person, listen, I'm not killing the seed, I'm not burying the seed for no reason, I'm planting the seed. And when you plant the seed, the goal is that something exponentially greater than what it was can be born from it. So I'm not just taking a seed and discarding it, throwing it away, kicking it into the earth and saying, be gone forever. No, what I'm doing is I'm planting the seed to grow into something exponentially greater than the seed itself. Because if you just have a seed, you just have a seed. But when you plant the seed, a whole tree with fruits and more seeds can grow, leading to generations and generations of more trees and fruit, life-giving food. In the example of a tree, I'm thinking of uh, in, in our front yard, we have a plum tree and a peach tree. For those of you that remember this from past years, so you should know, I was looking at the tree yesterday. I could even do, we could even do a live, shot, a live shot theoretically on my laptop. I can carry it outside to show you. We have probably close to 1,000 peaches growing on this peach tree. I know that sounds like a lot, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very robust peach tree right in our front yard. And, Sandri, and I see your thumbs up, it's as soon as it's ready to, to pick, anyone is invited to come by and, uh, and, 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 and enjoy fresh peaches from our peach tree. We usually pick them in the evenings and put them out in baskets. If you have a special order or you're coming a special time, you can come and you can pick your own. We have one of those telescoping uh, fruit picker things with the little claw and the little um, uh, foam basket thing. Anyway, everyone's invited to join and uh, pick the tree. Also, it's a competition between us and the squirrels because if we don't get it, the squirrels, they take one bite and they're like, yeah, not for us. I thought this was a nut or something. And meanwhile, you have a bunch of peaches with like one little squirrel bite. Now, if, that's, if you're cool with that, that's fine. But, uh, but me, uh, I don't know. If a squirrel's already bitten, I'm usually like, you know, I'm going to pass on that, on, that, uh, on that peach. Anyway, what's my point? We have a beautiful tree outside that produces upwards of 1,000 peaches every year, every spring, spring, summer. And, uh, and, and it, it's due to one seed that was planted, I'm assuming, right? I don't know about the, the origins of the, of the peach tree, but I'm assuming it's one seed. And so the idea of putting a seed into the earth is not to get rid of the seed. It's not to banish the seed. Oh, bad seed, be gone. No, it's, I mean, maybe the first person didn't know what they were doing. But after that, we know that when you plant the seed, it's going to grow into something exponentially greater. By the way, you know how it does it? The seed first decomposes and disintegrates 
becomes part of the earth, and only then does it grow. If the seed would never open up, if the seed would never become one with the earth, if the seed would hold on to its existence, then the growth would never happen. The growth only happens, the exponential growth only happens when the seed is planted, but when it also allows itself to deconstruct its own self, to be open, and only then can the, tra the transformation happen. A, a powerful lesson in life about, about our own personal growth. It says in Kabbalah that you can't go from one state of existence to another without a period of nothingness in between. In the language of Kabbalah, to go from yesh to yesh, from something to something, something to something radically different, there has to be an ayin be'emtza, there has to be a nothing in the interim. So it's kind of like this, you know, like a, like a loss that engenders growth. It's the, this, the disintegrating of the, of the seed that allows for it to really grow. But the point is, I'm using this example of the seed and planting to speak to the idea of investing. You take something and you, you throw it. It almost seems like you're throwing it away, but you're not throwing it away. It's an investment. To the untrained eye, it could seem like you're throwing it away. Think of a, of a literal financial investment. You had money, right? Say so you had $1,000, and you're going to take it, and you're going to throw it away? You, had a th you could have used the $1,000, and you're taking it and investing it? What does it mean to invest? It means you're taking it and giving it away. What's the point? Why are you investing? Seems like a waste. And of course, the answer is it's not a waste at all. What kind of waste? It's not, it's not a waste. It's an investment. An investment means that this is now going to, hopefully, yield something exponentially greater than what you put in. So you put in a seed, out comes a tree. You invest $1,000, you get $10,000, or $100,000, hopefully. Or you invest $1,000 in the context of, uh, of what we're doing, and you get Torah and wisdom. The point is like this. The point is... That an investment, at the core of what an investment is, it is the vehicle that by which you take something small and you grow it exponentially. Even though on the surface it looks like it might be throwing it away or something very reckless in the interim. And the more risky the investment, the more potential upside in the return. In a very similar way, is God's investment of the soul into us. God took a soul. God took a piece of him. The soul in Tanya is called a chelak elokami mal mamish. Literally a piece of God above. God took a part of himself, so to speak. Listen, not, can't anthropomorphize God and get away with it at least, but we can, uh, we can use some of this language that's brought down in, in, in the good books. God took a piece of himself and invested it, soul, invested it in you and I. And that's a very painful experience. And from the outside, someone can say, what was the point? The soul was on high. It had everything. It was connected. It had everything a soul could ask for. And now look at it. It's struggling with, with, with all of the craziness of this world. What's the point? Why would you do that to a soul? Why would you hurt the soul like that? 
Against its will, it lives. It doesn't want to be here. Why would you take the soul that only wants to be above and banish it to this cold, dark, and profoundly painful world? Why? Why would you take a seed and throw it into the earth and kick dirt on it? Why would you do that? And the answer is, it's not banishing and it's not punishing and it's not distancing the soul for no reason. It's an investment. It's an investment. It's planting whatever language you want to use. It's being sent below. The soul is being sent below for a greater purpose. Whether the greater purpose is for the body and the world around it to become radically improved, or whether the benefit is for the soul itself, either way, it is for a utility. It's for a benefit. It's for an exponentially greater benefit than had it not had that difficult experience. In the language of Kabbalah, it's called a Yerida Litzorech Aliyah. It's a descent for the purpose of ascent. It's going down in order to go up with the understanding that it could never have gone up to that place had it not first gone down. There is tremendous potential, tremendous energy, tremendous blessing inherent in this profound descent of the soul, which is why the very same Mishnah that we studied together a moment ago that says that against your will you live also says against your will you die. Because at some point the soul realizes that this world with all of its challenges, this reality with all of its pain is the only way that it can truly achieve its purpose and realize its potential, whether for itself or whether it is for the, the, world, the world at large. Either way, the, all of that, all of the light can only be achieved through its descent below. No pain, no gain. No deposit, no return. That's the way it is in life. That every great breakthrough comes through difficult challenge and pain. The break of dawn happens or occurs only after the darkness of night. As it says, those epic words in the creation narrative again and again and again and again in the opening chapter of Genesis. It says, Vayi Erev, Vayi Boker. It was evening and it was morning day one. It was evening and it was morning day two. It was evening and it was morning, day three, etc. That every day, on a daily basis, the process is first night, first darkness, and then light. First evening, and then morning. First pain, and then joy. First difficulty, and then up the breakthrough. That is the pattern of life itself the pattern of all existence, the pattern that God set forth in this universe on a macrocosmic level and on a microcosmic level. So for the universe at large, 
the descent of the light to create this world is a real descent for a greater purpose. The soul coming down into this world, into a body, is a great descent for the soul for a greater purpose. It's a yurida, the tzorech aliyah. It's a descent in order for an, for an ascent. But the ascent, this is very important, is not to get back to where it started. Because if it's only going back to where it came from, there's no point. What, it just went down to get back up? What's the point? You put the soul through all that just to get back to where it started? What we're talking about here is exponential growth that is created through its descent below. Exponential growth. A soul that has, that has come down into this world and has lived 70, 80, 90, 100, 110, 120 years. A soul that's been on this earth. Please God, 120. And has to a certain extent, conquered its existence, fulfilled its mission, and then returned above, is exponentially higher, exponentially greater than the soul prior to his descent below. On multiple levels. Number one, it brought light into this world. It transformed the world and a, and, a, and a body into a space for the divine. It created radical change in a radically different environment. Number one. And number two, its own connection, its own deepest powers were summoned during its journey below. Does that make sense? So in these ways, we understand what the Mishnah says, that against your will you live and against your will you die. Life is not pleasant for the soul, nor is death. Life is not pleasant for the soul. Life down here is not pleasant for the soul because the soul on some level would rather be above. But once it does come below, and it does begin embarking on its mission, and the transformation happens and it begins to exude its light. And it draws on its deepest powers. Then the soul doesn't want to leave. Because the soul knows that its greatest purpose is found right here. But, as we read, there's no escape in the grave, which means either there's no escaping of consequences in the grave, but also on a literal level, there's no escaping the grave either. All who have lived are destined to pass away, that Mishnah said. Those who are born are destined to die. And thus, the cycle is complete. The soul, a piece of God, comes below in order to elevate higher than it was before. And if you're wondering, how could it go? If it's a piece of God, how can you go higher? Where's the upgrade to that? Right? Kabbalah breaks it down. It's not for today to explore the different dimensions of the soul, but just, just know that there's room for growth and that growth happens through the radical descent. And one might step back and ask the question, are you, are you telling me that a soul 
grows spiritually by coming to this place? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's the point. No deposit, no return, no pain, no gain, no planting, no growth. The soul sent down below into this difficult environment, that's what causes the radical growth of the soul. Okay, make sense? Yes? So if we were to get into the psyche of the neshama, if we were to put the soul on a couch and analyze, psychoanalyze the soul, the soul would be mired in conflict. On the one hand, the soul would say, I want to be home. I don't want to be here. I yearn for a spiritual environment. Look at this place. Look at this place. I don't belong here. I'm a soul. I don't belong here. On the one hand. On the other hand, what the soul can accomplish here and how the soul can grow here unparalleled in any other realm of existence. Precisely because of the challenge. Precisely because of the spiritual distance. Precisely because of the darkness and the craziness of this world. <clears throat> the same is true on a macrocosmic level. The divine life force that is the soul of our world, right, because there's the individual soul in the individual body, and then there's the larger life force soul that gives life to planet Earth, this world, this universe, not just Earth, but this reality that we know and can explore. So, oh, I, I parenthetically, I know I'm right in the middle of something, but never stopped me before. I, uh, I just read in the last few days about the... You know the rover that they sent to Mars? Apparently, there's a helicopter. Do you guys see this? There's like a helicopter thing that is now... Matt, you saw this, right? It's now like... It's taking... like a, They took like a 37-second or 39-second flight above the surface. And it's crazy how it's powered because the atmosphere... Whatever. It's like super lightweight. It's under five pounds. And it's able to fly somehow. It moves like five times. The propellers move much faster than a normal helicopter. Anyway, it's a very complicated... Um, Matt, you got something on this? Anyway, so it's, uh, it's, a very, um, it's, a very, it's very incredible technology. But what are they looking for? One of the things they're looking for is signs of life on Mars. Bacterial, ba some bacterial signs of life. Now, this is not my field, as you, as you probably know. But I do know that there was a Chabad fellow who was worked for NASA in exactly this field to study signs of life on other planets based on bacteria. And he wrote in, he, he became, I think, more and more connected with Chabad as the years went on, became more, you know, connected with his Judaism and Chabad. And he asked, he wrote a letter to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, this is decades ago, is this consistent with Jewish belief, with Jewish, with Judaism to be searching for life on other planets? Or is it somehow sacrilegious or taboo, right? Is it like, oh no, we don't believe in life on other planets. The Rebbe wrote back, go ahead, no problem. There's nothing that precludes the possibility for there to be some sort of life on other planets. Now, we still believe that the primary space, the primary 
purpose of existence is for us right here that have Torah and can transform the world, etc. And our explorations can transform hopefully other spaces in, in a good way. But it doesn't preclude the possibility for there to be other life. Anyway, I mentioned that parenthetically. Um, and I don't remember exactly what triggered that thought, but I guess I'll try to work my way backwards. Getting back to, um, getting back to what I was saying before. So this, the, the, on a, oh, I know what I was saying, the microcosm, the macrocosm. So just as this is true with a soul and a body, this is true with the soul of the universe, including Mars, right? And our planet and the world and, 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 the, and the universe itself. Everything that exists has a soul. And so the divine energy flows down, as we said in previous sessions, from the highest of the, high, from the, highest of the spiritual realms. It flows downward and downward, lower, lower, lower. We talked about the, the attribute of Malchut, right, which is the lowest of the ten Svirot, which is the soul of, of existence. It's the Shrina, the divine presence, that, that, that in, an, in a close way enlivens, gives life to existence, our world as we know it, and our planets as we know them. And, and this life force comes down also for a greater gain, for a greater utility. No pain, no gain. The, the energy, the divine life force comes down below in order to unleash the greatest light that can be born of transformation that occurs here in a dark space. So just like it is with the soul, with the individual soul, so it is with the collective soul of the universe. The collective soul of the universe comes down, separating from God, so to speak, to come down to enliven this reality. Why? In order to have a dark space be transformed to light and thus to realize that transformation. Hope that makes sense. Yes? Sort of? Ish? Okay. Questions or comments before we jump into our text? Now is a time to jump in. Questions, comments? Okay. Rabbi, Rabbi. I have a question. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Matt, go ahead. Um, I was listening to the Kabbalah of the Future talk from a while ago. Yes. And I guess it, to me, almost the uh, Rabbi Chris kind of challenged, I don't know if I got this, Rabbi, I think he kind of challenged the notion that they, everything that lives needs to die based on, I guess, scientific technology in the future. So I was wondering... Do you, can, can that be broken? Because it almost sounded like he was, that the future technology is almost bringing a messianic state. Yes, you're asking a great question, right? Is it, is it a given? In other words, this Mishnah that we quoted and what I've said uh, thus far today, we've, we've kind of posited that everything that, that lives is going to die. Uh, certainly with people, but also with, with everything. And so the question that you're asking is, is this true? And Rabbi Chris mentioned that that's not necessarily the nature of, um, you know, the, the core nature of existence. And the truth is, you're right. And he's right. That the, 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 the state of reality in which we are now is such that that which is born will die. Because of the disconnect, the way um, Kabbalah explains the disconnect between the spiritual source and that which is being enlivened by that source. So in other words, there's a dissonance, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a breach, there's interference between 
you know, the signal and, and the cable itself between the, the soul and the body. And that creates the, the notion of mortality as we know it. If there would be a perfect symbi symbiosis between the soul and the body, whether it's on the micro or the macrocosm, whether it's the individual soul and the individual body or the collective soul of the universe and the collective body of the universe, then life could exist forever. We're getting closer to that scientifically, but the way we understand that is it's paralleling a, 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 a spiritual movement as well, which is this idea of a greater consciousness in the universe and a greater awareness of source. And once that, once that awareness is, is all-pervasive, then indeed the essential core um, of, of eternal life can resume the way it was intended originally. So yeah, that's, uh, it's a powerful idea. We're not there yet. So as it stands now, and, and there are benefits... I don't mean to sound um, to sound callous, but I mean, but there are there are benefits in the sense that there, you know, the contrast of life and death, and the you know the the light and darkness, that kind of that that kind of um, those distinctions create create a, a greater intensity in that perfected realm. You won't need that. You won't need those sides to kind of propel progress. It'll just be in in, in that in that good state. But the way it is now, for the, for the reality that we have now, this is, this is where we're at. Um, Susan, were you, yeah, you want to say? Just really quickly, I'm, I was thinking about the things that you were saying about the soul and wondering if an analogy would be that the soul actually has to be exercised to be strengthened and the exercises are basically the challenges. And that, so the idea is, what you're saying, and I'm, I'm just, I'm asking this, is that it comes down not necessarily in the state that it's going to go back up to be reconnected, that it actually gets strengthened if we kind of go through the exercises in the way to reconnect. Yeah, it's a great analogy. In other words, the exercise is painful, and it can feel like, why am I doing this? Like, what's the point, right? It's, it's, it's painful, and yet it yields a much greater result as a byproduct of, of the exercise than had we not done it. So it's kind of stretching the soul, right, in order for this greater, this greater, um, this greater benefit. Rabbi? Rabbi? Yes, Donna. So I guess souls go to every human being, not just Jews. And then the for other sure. question is, um, is there an infinite number of pre-existing souls? Or are they regenerated, you know, as the population grows? It's a great question. So first of all, yes, every person has a soul. Not only that, Kabbalah teaches every living, every thing has a soul, even that which does not appear to be alive. So even a stone that doesn't seem to exhibit any signs of life also has a soul, 100%. Now, there's different souls, different levels of souls. A soul for a rock is different than the soul for a plant, which is different than a soul for an animal, which is different than the soul for a human being. Right? So there's different, different levels of souls, but a spiritual soul is certainly um, common to, to every element of, of existence. Your second question, are there an infinite with human souls? Are there, are there, are there an infinite number of souls? Um, the answer is there was a defined number. Kabbalah teaches that there's a, initially a defined number of souls that, have, that, that can spawn additional souls as necessary. Although it also says in some sources, that Mashiach will come when all of the souls that need to be born are, are born. 
or come, come into this world. So I don't know if I can, I don't know if right now I can tell you on one foot exactly what that means. Um, but it sounds like there is somewhat of a finite number. And it sounds like there's also a, you know, a very intentional kind of uh, process by this. I don't think it's, uh, my understanding is it's not an infinite, endless number. It's, you know, it's either on demand or it's, um, it's intentional from the beginning exactly how many souls will need to be, uh, you know, need to be present. Listen, if, you're, if you or I were directing a film, we would have a very clear understanding, right, of exactly how many characters we need, how many actors and actresses we need to pull off the, uh, the film or the play. Um, okay, let's jump in. I want to share my screen and let's jump in to our new chapter because today we're going to be starting, sorry, our new discourse. Um, today we are starting discourse number six of our text, Overcoming Folly. So I want to jump right in because it's really um, directly, this is all exactly what we've been saying up until now. But you'll see it now in the language of Kabbalah using terminology and the, the context of our text. Discourse six, chapter number one. There we go. Worthwhile descent. When God instructed the moon, you might recall this from a few weeks ago. When God instructed the moon, go and diminish yourself. Remember the moon complained that there are two big, two big luminaries and it can't be. So God says to the moon, all right, you're complaining. Go make yourself small. So God then consoled the moon by telling it that tzaddikim would be righteous people would be called by your name. Shmuel the small, David the small, Samuel the small, David the small, etc. This is a, so what does that mean? What does it mean that God consoled it by telling the moon that, no, tzaddikim would be called by your name? What, what in the world does that actually mean? So he explains. This is a parallel for the descent of the soul into the body. Sorry, what? Before we get to this is a parallel. Let me give you the core idea, and then we're going to see how it is. What does this mean that tzaddikim will be called by your name? What it means is that through the diminishing of the moon, which is a euphemism for the tzimtzum and for the, the, the light, the spiritual light going down, down, down into this world, or the soul coming down, down, down into this world, although that's a painful experience for the soul or for the energy or for the light, because it wants to be back in its source, God says it's going to have an upside. It's going to... No pain, no gain. It's going to create exponential growth because of the descent. It's going to create exponential growth in the form of tzaddikim, those that bring light into the world, etc. So he says, this is a parallel for the descent of the soul into the body, an animal soul, where it is liable to become debased. Right When the soul comes down into this world, into a body, an animal soul, it can become debased. Why? Because this world is a world where all roads are suspect of danger. Everywhere you, doesn't only mean literally, it means figuratively. All roads lead to Rome. And you know what happens in Rome, right? No, all roads are suspect, are, are, are dangerous. For, as it says in Genesis, sin crouches at the door. So the soul is found in an environment that is highly spiritually dangerous. Nonetheless, the descent of the soul 
is worth the risk on account of the magnificent ascent that it brings about. This sentence is essentially what I've been saying up until now. The descent, with all of its risk, is worth it on account of the upside, on the account of the magnificent ascent that it brings about. The investment is worth it. It's worth all the risk because of the payoff that it will lead to. The godly soul begins its earthly experience by being clothed in a body and an animal soul risking defilement. Yeah, that's how the soul begins. That's why it's against its will. Who wants that? What kind of soul would want that? A soul wants to be ripped away from, from, from God and be put into a body, an animal soul, in a space of defilement? Are you kidding me? Yet, by withstanding tests at every turn and conquering passions, resisting the persuasions of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, being scrupulous about turning from evil and performing good with all their details and particulars, not permitting worldly concerns to prevent Torah study and divine service, but quite the contrary, it's a long sentence, but quite the contrary, whatever worldly activity one is compelled to engage in, he directs to God's purpose. For example, food is not for satisfying an appetite, but to maintain health and to derive vigor, to be able to study and pray. And then one does study and pray with that energy. And similarly, it's all one sentence here, similarly in business matters, one is meticulous about his every act. He does not permit his business to distract him from Torah and worship through being completely immersed in it. His objective in business is to gain profit and to give tzedakah and to have time to study and pray. When a person lives a life like this, that's what leads to the great ascent. Again, it's, it's a big, it's a long sentence, even if it was divided into a few different sentences here. It's a long run-on sentence talking about the experience of the soul that came below, that is faced with tests and passions and persuasions of evil nature, and it has to live its life turning from evil and doing good, and it has to be strong and strengthen itself to not permit worldly concerns to stop it from studying Torah and serving God. And on the contrary, whatever physical activities it does engage in, it flips it for the positive. So, for example, he says, when you eat food, the soul is able to impress upon the body that food is not simply an indulgent exercise of a sensual food experience, but food is primarily about health and energy in order to do the things that we're really here to do, which is study and pray and help others. And then one does do that with the food. And similarly, when it comes to business, the soul is able to influence the person that the person does not become sucked into the world of business and sucked into the world of money and power, but rather knows why they're working and thus works in a correspondingly holy way. So obviously not doing anything dishonest in business and then use, utilizing the profits of the business to do good things in this world by giving tzedakah, 
And by having the, the ability to create time to study and pray. You know, it's harder to study and pray when you don't have food on your table. But when you have Baruch Hashem, you have food, you have money, you have whatever you need. You need to keep on doing that. Sure, you have, you have people that are doing that for you, right? You pay people, let them continue the business. But you now have more time to study and pray. You have more ability to give tzedakah. That is the influence of the neshama, of the soul, on the body. That is what we're talking about, about the investment. God took a soul, a piece of God from above, and sent it into a body in, with an animal soul as its neighbor and an evil inclination as its sparring partner into this physical world and said, good luck. And so what's the role of the soul? It's to withstand temptation, not listen to the evil inclination, not do the wrong thing, do the right thing, and everything that a person needs to do physically, like eat and work, the soul can transform that from a mundane experience to a holy experience. Are you with me on this? The soul can transform food into divine worship. It can transform work into divine worship, a spiritual experience. I have to tell you one thing about my grandfather that I've never met someone who was less into food than he was. Not that he didn't like food, but it's hard to describe. You know, I would tell him when he visited here, you know, we'll, uh, we'll order some food. We'll get some food from one of the restaurants. What, what do you want? You know, everyone, everyone knows what they want, right? It's like a restaurant. Oh, yeah, ready to go. He was like, whatever you're having, whatever's good. And if he liked it, he had a little bit. And then he ate a little bit of everything. He would always say, I want a little bit of everything. It's a person who didn't indulge in food for the sake of food. It was always for... A higher purpose, i.e. energy. The body needs energy, healthy energy, right? Kosher, spiritually healthy and physically healthy energy in order to do what I need to do. In order to study Torah and do mitzvahs and work and whatever it is. And his work was holy work, right? He was a scribe and a, and a shokhet. But whatever it was, that you need to do, you need fuel. So do I need to indulge in the fuel? Who's indulging? Example that I've given many times, you've heard me say this you know, many, many times. I have yet to see a person take a selfie at the gas tank, right? Or at the fueling, right? Oh, look, the, I'm using the 93 today with a selfie. You, you fuel, whatever the car needs, you fuel up and you go on. Why? Because you know that the process of fueling the car it's not in enough, it's not a, it's not, that's not the purpose. That's not the end. Imagine if a person wakes up, what am I going to do today? I'm going to fuel up my car. And then what? Nothing. Right? I'm just putting gas in the tank. Why? What do you mean why? I'm putting gas in the tank. Are you going somewhere? No. So why do you need gas in the tank? Because I'm putting gas in the tank. It's a whole experience. 
I'm going to invite my friends. We're going to fill up the tanks together. Meet me at the BP on the corner and we're all going to fill our tanks together. It's Meshuggah. It's crazy. I don't want to be a party pooper because, you know, we, we all enjoy food. But let's get a little perspective, right? Food is fuel for the body. We also happen to enjoy it. How do we know the car doesn't enjoy it? Maybe the car would love to hang out with its friends and fuel up together, right? Oh, what are you getting? The 93, I'm getting the 87. I don't... Like maybe it's a whole thing. Who would know? Right? Who would... It was a whole thing in cars. In cars, right, exactly. You see that? Hollywood can even <laughs> implant temptation on a car. Nothing is safe. Nothing is safe from temptation. Look, that's hilarious. Um, the point is that a perspective of the soul, not the body, is I need to eat to have energy to do the next mitzvah, to study more Torah, or to do my work, which is also for a higher purpose. To do it honestly, to earn money, to be able to give and, 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 and bring light into the world with those resources, and to also have time to study Torah and do more mitzvah myself. That's the whole purpose. It's all about the light. So here's, here's what he, we're right in the middle of, a, of, a, of an idea here, but it's such a long paragraph, we have to, we have to explain it before we get to the, to the upshot. So where, but where, where is he going with this? He's trying to say that on the one hand, it's very painful for the soul to come down into this world. But on the other hand, look what a soul can do. Look at the influence that a soul can have. Look at the transformational effect that a soul can have on its body and animal soul and on the world around it. And when it does that, that is the ascent that is born of the descent. Let me share my screen with you and let's finish off, not finish up, but let's round it out. All this, so we're, we're right here now, this bottom paragraph, all of this results in ascent for the soul to heights far higher than its standing before it was clothed in a body and animal soul. I'm going to highlight that whole sentence there. That's it. Look at that. He says, this, living this life, a soul and a body and withstanding all of the temptations, not all, I mean, listen, no one's perfect, but withstanding temptations and doing good and fighting for light, that results in lifting the soul far higher than it was before it came down into a body and animal soul. Because then, Back in the day, before it came down, it had not met any obstacles. It had no awareness of the antithesis of holiness. And hence, had to employ no effort. A soul above, easy street USA. Or something like that. It was easy for the soul. It was no challenge. There was no challenge for the soul. It was easy. By investment... Page 100. By investment... Oh, wow. Okay, that's, that's crazy. We started today on page 98. I'm sorry if I see patterns, but my grandfather passed away at the age of 98. We started today Discourse 6 on page 98. All right, we're now on page 100. 
Next, by investment in a body and performing its service. Humbling the body and the animal soul to be perfect in serving God. This causes a tremendous ascent for the soul and causes unbounded delight on high, above. So again, by the soul's investment in a body and by the soul doing what it needs to do, which is humbling. Humbling maybe has a negative connotation, but it means, you know, tempering. It means calming down the body and animal soul and moving it to, so that they also are part of the service of God. The soul fighting for light in a foreign environment causes a tremendous ascent for the soul and also causes unbounded joy and delight on high. In other words, it gives Hashem incredible pleasure seeing a soul, seeing its soul. Well, it's a piece of God going into a foreign environment and transforming even that foreign environment to a, to a, to a holy space. It is written, this is such a beautiful idea. It is written this is by the birth of Isaac. Remember Sarah? She was 90 years old and she gave birth to a son. She called him Yitzchak. Isaac. Yitzchak. Why Yitzchak? Yitzchak tzachok means laughter. And she said, God has caused me laughter. Right? By giving me this child, God has given me laughter and joy. It was very difficult for her, as the Torah says, it was very difficult for her and with, with her, she didn't, have, she didn't have a child of her own. She even gave her maidservant to Abraham, but it was not. When Hashem blesses her with a son at, a, at, a, at, a, at an older age, she said, Hashem, God has caused me laughter. But, if, but we're going to understand this today Kabbalistically. It says, Tzchok, laughter, Asali Elokim. Elokim has caused me laughter. What brings out the joy? Elokim. Elokim is a euphemism for the tzimtzum, the darkness. It is specifically back inside. It is specifically through the name Elokim, which is permitting the existence of beings in all of the physical material world, that the, that the divine delight comes about. Elokim is the, is the idea of the concealment of the light and the tzimtzum of the light is the idea of the soul coming down below, the soul of the universe, but also the individual soul. Elohim is the concealment for this to exist. And that's what causes the laughter above. Again, we're stripping the verse from its context about Sarah and a child, and we're speaking about God. That what causes God laughter or joy it's the Elohim. It's the darkness that is transformed into light. For everything comes from the name Elohim. Right? Existence comes from Elohim. As it is written, Genesis 1.1, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created. Right? Elohim means tzimtzum. Why, why doesn't it say Bereshit bara Hashem? Why doesn't it say with the four-letter name of God? Why doesn't it say that? Why does it say Elohim? Because Elohim means the contraction and concealment of the light. In other words, the sending the light down lower, lower, lower to give life to a very distant physical reality. That's what Elohim is. 
but that's where the laughter comes from. That's where the, that's where the growth comes from. That's where the ascent comes from. That's where the return on the investment comes from, from the darkest space, from that which is born of Elohim. The animal soul, too, derives from the name Elohim, as explained elsewhere. It is a person's labor here below, the spiritual work below, subordinating the gross element of all material affairs, turning from evil and performing good in actuality, not in theory, but actually standing up against what is wrong and standing for what is right. It's that which specifically causes the divine laughter and delight. We're going to stop here because we're going to get into the macrocosmic application, Malchut and the universe and how Malchut descends and its descent to give life to the universe is also for a higher purpose. But there's so many details here with numerology and, and, and sparks that can't do it on one foot or in just a few minutes. So we're going to have to start that off next week with that conversation. But to wrap up today's conversation, there was one theme that we spoke about today. Just one theme, not just one theme, the one theme that's really everything. What's the purpose of existence? And what's the purpose of our existence? The purpose of existence is to transform a dark world and a dark space into a home for God. And for the soul to reach into its depths and to find out for itself what it is truly made of. None of those happen when the soul remains above. It's not transforming anything and it's not tapping into its greatest potential. When, does, when do those two things happen? When the soul is sent far away into a cold and dark and painful world. The soul is sent down here. It can transform this lowly dark space into a beautiful place. And when it does that, the only way it can do that is when it summons every ounce of its power to withstand all of the temptations. The world says, food, enjoy, nothing higher. The, food sa- the world says, money, it's for you. And God says, and the soul knows inside that everything is for a higher purpose. Not to take the fun out of life, but to enrich life with a meaning that is the true source of joy. Because you and I know that when we live, when we engage in physical indulgence, for the moment it might feel good, but a moment later, it brings about the greatest feelings of emptiness. The greatest feelings, the most empty we feel come after that which we thought was gonna be the great high or the great pleasure of the physical stuff. What is true joy, true happiness, true pleasure? It's the eternal stuff. It's working hard. It's earning money. 
and then it's taking some, some of our resources and making a difference in the world. That's priceless. They tell a story. I'll, I'll end with this. They tell a story. It's, I've seen it about different people, so I don't know who it happened with, and, but either way, we could say about uh, Rothschild, the great uh, Jewish uh, you know, philanthropist, financier, whatever. They say that he was once asked how much he was worth. And he, he stated a number, a figure. And the person that asked him said, come on, you're worth much more than that. So he said, look, I told you the amount that I've given away, that I've given to tzedakah. Because at the end of the day, everything else can be taken away from me. Here today, gone tomorrow, anything could happen, God forbid, and it could vanish in thin air. But the one thing that can never be taken away from me is what I've given and what I've, what I've created, what I've blessed the world with. This is our true legacy. At the end of the day, after 120 years, it's not what we had, but it's what we gave that matters. It's not what we had, but it's what we gave. That's the true legacy of any human being. It's the true legacy of the soul. And it's why the soul came down below. So that it could create a transformation, be part of a revolution that is indeed the purpose of everything. Thank you for joining me today for Kabbalah and Coffee. I hope you have a week filled with light and joy and the opportunity I hope that you and I have the perspective this week that when the, the mundane stuff comes our way, that we have the strength to say, we'll all be okay. We don't need to get sucked into this. We don't need to be all you know, distracted by these distractions. I'll eat, I'll eat. Yeah, there's a higher function here. There's a higher purpose here. When, when temptation comes our way, we should say, I know why it's coming my way. For me to use this opportunity to flip it, to transform the darkness to light, bring out the core strength in myself and illuminate the world with a light that it could never have otherwise. We're not looking to finish the job and bounce out of here. We're looking to really saturate every moment that we have, every precious and dear moment that we have on this earth to infuse it with meaning and purpose. May we do that this week and every week. May we have the, the strength and energy to confront all of the darkness, to look it in the eye and say, you will now become light. Thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Arian. And um, we send all the family much love. Thank and, you. And we, it's, it's very sad. And uh, all, all our love. Thank you so much. Thank it really means much a lot. To give this class with, with so much strength and with all the soul. And, and it's, it's a very touched class. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for saying that. And thank you. It's very, very, um, very heartfelt. Thank you. All right. Good. Thank you, Rabbi. My pleasure. My pleasure. Good to see you all. Um, okay. Okay. Good. We'll have more opportunities to study this week. Uh, don't forget Tuesday night. We have our course about Mashiach, an amazing course. 
and uh, again, very, very personal and timely as well. Um, so if you're not yet part of that and you want to jump in on it, just reach out and we can get you connected with that and uh, take a look for other, other um, announcements being made this week. Tomorrow, Rabbi? Yes, yes, we will be doing Daily Power Parsha. I'm debating whether or not to, in, to introduce a new feature to it or to create a new thing. I want to learn some, I want to teach and learn together some Mishnayot, <coughs> Mishnah in honor of my grandfather. Because Mishnah <coughs> shares, we learned some Mishnah today, if you notice. We started off by the Mishnah Perkei Avot. Mishnah shares the same Hebrew letters as Neshama. Mishnah and Neshama are the same letters. And so in honor of someone who passes away, it's a tradition to study Mishnah. <coughs> so I want to study a tractate of Mishnah together with those that wish to join me. My only question, not only question, the question is, do I want to do it as part of DPP? You know, as like an addition to DPP or as a standalone? So I'm not sure. But by tomorrow, either way, we'll have DPP and uh, either we'll do it then or we'll do it as a separate opportunity. All right, we're going to, start, we're going to study together the first tractate, which is Brachot, which deals with uh, the blessings which is a really beautiful way to, uh, to start Mishnah. Okay, um, great to see everyone. Have a wonderful day. Enjoy a happy Mother's Day for all, uh, for all the moms out there and for all of our moms. Happy Mother's Day. Everyone has a mom, right? If we're here, it means there was a mom that we had that brought us into this world. So happy Mother's Day. Really beautiful, uh, beautiful day. Okay, take care all. Uh, great to see everybody. Have a wonderful week. Shavuot Tov. Take care. Shavuot Tov.